Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes graphic descriptions of the kidnapping of a minor, as well as dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In 1975, the Whittle family owned a large house in the English village of Hiley. But even so, it was no palatial affair. With a double garage and low white fences, it hardly hinted at the immense wealth of the man who built it. George Whittle had successfully grown the family's coach business into one of the most lucrative of its kind in the United Kingdom. And after he died in 1970, the fruit of his labor went to his surviving family members. He bequeathed the estate to his son, Ronald, who received 177,000 pounds and took over the business. Additional money and property went to his common-law wife, Dorothy, and he left a trust of about 82,000 pounds, the equivalent of over 660,000 pounds today, to his teenage daughter, Leslie. George Whittle was not boastful about his money when he was alive, but after he died, the details of the family's inheritance became quite the local scandal. George Whittle's death revealed a long-held secret. He had never officially divorced his first wife, Selena, and had been providing her with a meager weekly stipend of two pounds, claiming he couldn't afford to pay her any more. When George Whittle died and the true nature of his wealth was revealed, Selena demanded better compensation, prompting the press to document the drama as it unfolded. London's Daily Express wrote a story in 1972 emphasizing the massive disparity between Selena's pay and the inheritance Leslie, Ronald, and Dorothy were to receive. In the article, the Daily Express published the fact that young Leslie Whittle was to inherit 82,000 pounds. This anecdote was intended as a jab at the late George Whittle for his miserly treatment of his first wife, but that information was going to have far more significant consequences a short three years later. Around 1.30 a.m. on January 14, 1975, Dorothy Whittle came home from a night with friends. Looking into her daughter's bedroom, she saw Leslie sleeping soundly. Everything appeared normal. But that morning, when Dorothy called Leslie downstairs for breakfast, there was no answer. She ventured back to her daughter's room. Leslie was gone. Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives close the case. You can find episodes of Solved Murders and all other podcast originals for free exclusively on Spotify. To stream Solved Murders for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Solved Murders in the search bar. This is our first episode on the kidnapping and murder of Leslie Whittle. This week, we'll cover the search for the missing heiress. Next week, we'll cover the unlikely way the killer was caught and the tragic events that led to Leslie's death. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. 
Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. On the chilly morning of January 14, 1975, Dorothy Whittle began her day the way she always did. She went into the kitchen, past her daughter's bedroom, and began to make coffee. Only Dorothy and Leslie shared the house after George Whittle's death. As such, Dorothy and Leslie were quite close. At 17, Leslie Whittle hardly displayed the more disobedient tendencies of a teenager. She was a student at Wolfram College nearby and still spent a great deal of time with her family. Leslie Whittle stood just below five feet tall, with straight brown hair and an easy, welcoming smile. She was a kind, friendly sort of girl and well-liked in highly. The business's transport manager, Len Rudd, later told a documentary that he would have been proud to have Leslie as his own daughter. So Dorothy found it strange when Leslie didn't respond to her call for breakfast. Dorothy returned to her daughter's bedroom where everything looked the same as it had the night before, but Leslie was nowhere to be seen. It wasn't like Leslie to leave without notice so early in the morning. And looking around the room, Dorothy Whittle noticed the only things missing were Leslie's nightgown and slippers. Hardly the sort of thing a teenage girl would wear for a quick morning walk. Fearing the worst, Dorothy Whittle immediately tried to call her son Ronald, but the phone line wasn't working. Agitated, she drove to his house across town. As she passed through Hiley, Dorothy Whittle kept glancing out the window to see if she could find Leslie. Maybe her daughter was just on a morning walk, and everything would be fine. But Leslie wasn't out on a walk. And when Dorothy Whittle got to her son's house, Leslie wasn't there either. Ronald hadn't heard from his sister that day and had no idea where she could be. Growing more worried by the minute, Dorothy Whittle, her son, and his wife returned to the family home to see if Leslie left any indication of where she went. Leslie Whittle's bedroom offered nothing new, just the bizarre fact that her dressing gown and slippers were missing. She hadn't even taken her coat with her, and on a cold January morning, that seemed particularly strange. There was no sign of a struggle, at least as far as Dorothy and Ronald Whittle could tell. No broken windows, no indication that the front door had been pried open. So far, it was as if Leslie Whittle had simply vanished into the night. 
And you're sure she wouldn't have gone off with her friends? There's no reason she might have just run off? Wouldn't she leave a note if she was going on a walk? Unless something happened to her. Oh God, what if something horrible happened to her? It just doesn't make sense. That is strange. Come, let's look over the rest of the house. What's this now? What did you find? It's a roll of labeling tape. Someone placed it with this chocolate box in front of the hearth. That's odd. Did Leslie put this here? Is this something to do with her studies? What is it? What does it say? Good God. A message written in stilted half-sentences was carefully typed out on the roll of labeling tape. The note demanded a 50,000-pound ransom be brought in small bills to a telephone box at the nearby Swan Shopping Center that night. Whoever brought the cash would allegedly receive a call at that telephone box, explaining the next details of the exchange. The note assured the Whittles that if they failed to follow instructions, Leslie would die. The message concluded, From the time you answer the telephone, you are on a time limit. If police or tricks, death. The note was terrifying, but the Whittle family wasn't interested in following the instructions of a kidnapper. Ronald Whittle immediately called the police. The village of Hiley wasn't particularly prone to violent crime, but if there was ever a murder case that needed solving, Detective Chief Superintendent Bob Booth of West Mercia Police was the one person guaranteed to get the job done. Bob Booth had recently achieved the title of Member in Most Excellent Order of the British Empire, an award marking notable achievement in public service. He had earned this title for solving all 70 of the murder cases that crossed his desk. The disappearance of Leslie Whittle was promised to be no different. The man certainly looked the part of a hardened police officer, his brow permanently furrowed, his mouth frozen in a taut, stern line beneath a large mustache. He was a man who would not be easily phased by the disappearance of a teenage heiress. If anything, he was initially skeptical. And you're sure she didn't run off with her school friends? This isn't some kind of prank. Mm, Doesn't sound like it. The mother and the brother seem pretty shaken up over the phone. Right. Let's talk to the brother and see what we can do to sort this out. Give me the details on the rendezvous point again. Mm, looks like the note said to go to a telephone box at Swan Shopping Center over in Kidderminster and wait from 6 p.m. to 1 a.m. for a phone call. It specifies that the person bringing the money only gives their name when they receive the call. Nothing in here about how the girl... Leslie Whittle, officer. She's a person with a name. We mustn't forget that. Pardon me, sir. Um, nothing in here about how Leslie Whittle will be returned. That doesn't bode well, but I don't see what other options we have. Perhaps, but this is a start. Let's press on. The police worked with Ronald Whittle on a plan for that night. Ronald was to drive to the rendezvous point alone, bringing the 50,000 pounds in ransom money with him. The police even went so far as to have the money photocopied so that it could be traced later should it be used. But Ronald Whittle wasn't entirely alone. Surrounding the phone booth, undercover police officers were stationed at the ready. One officer was specifically monitoring calls to the phone booths at the shopping center, ready to record. 
The plan seemed foolproof, except for one incredibly important detail. Bob Booth had failed to call for a media blackout on the case. So that same night, at the worst possible moment, the story broke. Stunning news is coming in from the Shropshire village of Hyley. It is known that a young girl has been abducted and police have found a ransom demand. It is believed 50,000 pounds is being asked for the safe return of Leslie Whittle. Just like that, the story was out and any chance of secrecy was completely destroyed. Bob Booth could only hope that somehow the kidnapper hadn't heard the radio broadcast. Everything was still in place, and all there was left to do was wait. 6 p.m. turned to 7, then 9, then 11. It was getting close to midnight, and no one had called. All right, lads, let's head home. Our boy isn't calling tonight. But surely we should wait until 1 a.m., just to be sure? Negative. You heard the broadcast. And I bet our kidnapper did, too. Sorry to say, but I just don't think he's giving us a ring tonight. Let's pack up and get out of here. You got it. Leaving now. It looked like this first attempt was a bust. Ronald Whittle left dejected, fearing the worst for his sister. But after they drove away... The phone rang. And rang. But no one picked up. By the time the kidnapper called, no one was there to answer. This would be only one instance in a long line of mistakes and blunders made by the police in the desperate search for Leslie Whittle. Bob Booth knew that every second wasted in the search for the young heiress was precious time. And the longer the case dragged on, the lower the chances were that Leslie Whittle would be found alive. And so far... Things weren't looking good. The day after Leslie Whittle was taken from her home, the press descended on the small British village of Hyley. Every major newspaper in the country covered the shocking story of the missing heiress and the anonymous note demanding 50,000 pounds for her release. It was the stuff of movies, not the kind of thing that should happen in a small English town. But this press intrigue came as a frustrating new hurdle for Bob Booth to clear as he attempted to organize another rendezvous at the Swan Shopping Center that night. He found himself a local celebrity. The press begged him for any information about the case or any suggestion of how close he was to finding Leslie Whittle. Journalists were also desperate to talk to Leslie Whittle's family, and they hounded Ronald Whittle. And while he was stern in his refusal to divulge anything to the press, that didn't stop a swarm of photographers and journalists from following his every move. That night, Ronald Whittle returned to the Swan Shopping Center to see if he could answer the call from the elusive kidnapper. But this time, the press knew where he would be. Ronald! Ronald! Where is Leslie? Where is your sister? Are you waiting on the call from the kidnapper? Ronald, what are you going to tell him when he calls? Any comment for the Times? Despite the distraction... Ronald and the covert police officers waited in the shopping center for hours, hoping that the anonymous kidnapper would call again. But this time, the call never came. Coming up, an unexpected clue speeds up the hunt for Leslie. Listeners, I have a surprising treat for you. 
You know you can find love in a bar or on an app. Why not a podcast? In Blind Dating, the new Spotify original from Parcast, we're expanding the places you can meet your match with a twist you'll never see coming. Every Wednesday, YouTuber and host Tara Michelle introduces one hopeful single to two strangers in a voice-only call. Through a series of illuminating games and questions, the trio finds all the sweetness and awkwardness of a first date, minus the distraction of appearances. But once our hopeful single chooses their match, the cameras are turned on, and it's either butterflies or goodbye. Blind Dating airs weekly with new episodes every Wednesday. You can find and follow Blind Dating free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. By January 16, 1975, Leslie Whittle had been missing for over 48 hours, and neither the police nor Leslie's family were any closer to finding her. Meanwhile, the press was still printing the story in all of Britain's major newspapers, hounding the investigation in an attempt to find out any new information about the heiress's sudden disappearance. But the investigation was about to get a new clue from an unexpected source, Leslie herself. Around midnight on January 17th, the Whittle phone line rang. When the call came in, the business's transport manager, Len Rudd, who'd been helping the family, answered. Over an unrecognizable whistling sound, a familiar voice spoke clearly and calmly. Mom, you need to go to the Kids Grove Post Office telephone box. The instructions are inside. I'm okay, but there are to be no police and no tricks, okay? There was no mistaking it. That was Leslie Whittle's voice. The call gave no clear indication of where she was, other than the bizarre sound that was similar to rushing water. At first, hearing Leslie's voice shot a jolt of hopefulness through Len Rudd. This meant Leslie was still alive. But though Len Rudd asked Leslie where she was or if she needed help, Leslie wouldn't answer. Quickly, Len Rudd's surge of hope turned to dread. There was no guarantee that Leslie Whittle was still alive after all. The call was a recording. Leslie's call put the investigation into overdrive. In addition to local police, Bob Booth joined with a surveillance team from Scotland Yard. The plan was similar to the first two attempts. Ronald Whittle would drive to the drop-off site alone, but this time... The yard fitted Ronald with a radio transmitter so he could stay in touch with the undercover police officers who would be monitoring the site. This new location was under the jurisdiction of another police department, but in an attempt to avoid any further complications, Bob Booth advised them to stay away from this case and let his team handle it. He was also sure to keep this operation secret from the press. But all of these preparations took time. And by the time Ronald Whittle got to the drop-off site, 
He was an hour late. It took him another 30 minutes to find the message left behind the backboard of the phone booth. Come on, come on. Where is it? Thank God. Right, what does this say? Damn it. I have to go somewhere else? The note instructed Ronald to drive a mile away to a parking lot near Bathpool Park in Kidsgrove. Once he got there, Ronald was instructed to flash his headlights and wait for a response from a torchlight. Please be there. Please. He sped the car to another area of the park, worried that he had accidentally arrived at the wrong location. Hello? Hello? I'm here! Hello? Ronald Whittle waited for an hour to no avail. The kidnapper never showed. Eventually, the operation was called off. This third attempt had been a failure, but hopefully, the site of the botched meetup could provide more clues. Bob Booth urged a search of Bathpool Park to see if there was anything left that could lead the police to Leslie Whittle. But Scotland Yard had other ideas. We simply cannot afford any indication that the police are involved, let alone the Yard. Sending a bunch of bobbies into the park in the middle of the day sends the clear message that the Whittle family have gone against the kidnappers' instructions. And that could spell trouble. Understood, but we also cannot afford to miss any crucial evidence that could lead to this girl's safe retrieval. We've wasted too much time already. And the sight of a bunch of squad cars could mean the end of this young girl's life. If you're worried about wasting time, this surely sounds like it to me. I won't budge on this. Someone has to do a sweep. Fine, but let the yard handle this. We will be sure to do a discreet search. (sighs) Well, off you pop then. Scotland Yard allegedly surveyed the park for two days. Both times, they turned up empty-handed. The trail had gone cold. The investigation endured a week of deafening silence from the kidnapper and Leslie. In the meantime, Bob Booth urged Dorothy and Ronald Whittle to make public pleas to the kidnapper. I am on the phone day and night. I am just hoping that they will get in touch with me. We just want our Leslie to come home safe and sound. We're ready to cooperate. We're ready to listen. Whatever the instructions, we will follow them to ensure my daughter's safe return. All we want is for someone to contact us. We don't care how. Journalists and TV crews were more than willing to interview the family of a missing heiress, but the majority of the press coverage didn't do much to aid the search. We've had a number of hoax calls, and these people are quite frankly wasting their time. They're wasting our time, and most importantly, they're wasting Leslie's precious time. We shall not act. I shall not move from the house until I have definite proof that Leslie is alive and well. These pleas did nothing to coax a response from the kidnapper, but the Whittle family kept making these public statements anyway. As the investigation dragged on, the number of officers on the case grew in tandem with the staggering number of people interviewed for information. At least four different police forces were working to uncover Leslie's whereabouts. Bob Booth launched a massive search of the area surrounding the Whittle House, employing hundreds of officers to search every building, shed, or outhouse and conduct door-to-door inquiries. 
The investigation grew frenzied and desperate. Multiple reports came in of people claiming to have seen Leslie, all of which proved false. Police scoured the village, looking for a scrap of evidence, a piece of Leslie's nightgown, a missing slipper, anything at all. But they found nothing. Things were looking bleak. But after a week with no progress, another phone call would break the case wide open. Detective Chief Superintendent Robert Booth speaking. Sir, this is Officer Shepard with West Midlands Police. We found something you might want to look at. Oh? Yes, sir. Uh, My men have been investigating the shooting of a security guard named Gerald Smith. The man was attacked in the car park in Dudley on January 16th. Didn't you try to contact the kidnapper and the widow disappearance that night? Yes, but I don't see how a shooting in Dudley would have anything to do with that. Well, sir, we found a car. A car? Yes, sir. It's a Morris 1300 with faulty plates. We think you might want to have a look at it. Our boys did a cursory search inside, and we found rope, rolls of labeling tape... Wait, you're telling me your boys just found this car? It's been sitting there for over a week? Yes, sir. I'm sorry, sir. But we really think you should have a look. You're damn well right I should have a look. Don't let your boys move anything in that car, do you understand me? Understood, sir. But there's something else. Jesus Christ, what is it? We collected the bullet casings from the gun that shot Gerald Smith, sir. We've seen them before. Coming up, we learn the identity of the kidnapper. Stay with us. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. And now, back to our story. The stolen Morris 1300 was an unassuming car, small and boxy with bug-eyed headlights, and it offered little indication of the shocking clues that hid inside. When Detective Chief Superintendent Bob Booth examined the car after it was discovered in late January, he found a treasure trove of clues. But one of the most shocking clues had nothing to do with Leslie Whittle. The bullets used to shoot Gerald Smith matched those used by one of Britain's most wanted and elusive killers, the Black Panther. The Black Panther was so named because of the black clothes and balaclava he wore to shield his identity. Between 1974 and 1975, the elusive criminal established a name for himself as a brutally violent killer. He was known for killing post officers and using extreme violence at the smallest provocation. His first reported murder came in February 1974. 
Good morning. Just coming in is a shocking report of a murder in Harrogate, North Yorkshire. Sub-postmaster Donald Skepper has been found shot to death with reports of a hooded figure fleeing the scene. And then, in September of that same year, the Black Panther struck again. Breaking news that a sub-postmaster has been pronounced dead today, September 6th, after being shot by a hooded man who had broken into his Lancashire home. Police believe the same man was responsible for the death of sub-postmaster Donald Skepper seven months prior. By his third reported attack, he had earned a name for himself. News of another murder by the so-called Black Panther has been brought to our attention. West Midland sub-postmaster Sidney Grayland was shot dead by a hooded man last night, November 11th. Grayland's wife Margaret was beaten severely, though she remains in critical condition. The Black Panther was also linked to dozens of unsolved robberies that shared similar characteristics. The phone lines had been cut, and the assailant had worn a black hood. He had even been reported to use different accents for each attack in an attempt to keep anyone from guessing his identity. The general profile of the Black Panther was a ruthless, cold man who would display vicious acts of violence at the slightest provocation. And he was exactly the last person that one would want to be responsible for the kidnapping. Much in the way that the kidnapping of a young heiress was not the sort of thing expected to happen in a small English town, it was unthinkable that such an event could be tied to the country's most elusive and dangerous killer. And just as the press plastered the story of the missing heiress across every major news outlet in the country, the discovery of the abandoned car and its link to both Leslie Whittle and the Black Panther was the biggest scoop yet. The Whittle family used the added press to continue making public pleas for the kidnapper to initiate contact. Ronald Whittle told the Times in a February 11th article that he would still like to speak with the Black Panther, despite the killer's ruthless reputation. He emphasized that if the Black Panther wanted his ransom money, there was only one way to do it. Make contact. It was certainly a shock to realize that this car belonged to one of Britain's most notorious and elusive killers. But the discovery that the Black Panther was responsible for the kidnapping of Leslie Whittle was entirely unexpected. All right, what have you boys left me with? Officer, write down the list of items I'm about to describe to you. Understood? Understood, sir. Length of rope, torch, gloves. Got it. Uh, four large envelopes. Sir? Inside the envelope, a roll of labeling tape, just like the one left at the Whittle House. Officer, make a note of that. I'd wager that all of these envelopes have different rolls of tape. Looks like they're instructions. Maybe directions to another drop-off site. Yes, sir. A pair of women's slippers, most likely Leslie Whittle's. This thing is like a treasure chest. I think we've got our guy. Time to find out where he was trying to lead us. Bob Booth was right. The slippers had come from the Whittle household, a decisive clue that linked this car and the Black Panther to Leslie Whittle's disappearance. And if that wasn't enough, the four envelopes discovered in the car were further proof. 
The rolls of label tape packed in each envelope were written in the same stilted writing as the ransom note found in the Whittle house, and each roll contained directions to different telephone boxes around the Midlands. These, Bob Booth deduced, were the instructions Ronald Whittle was supposed to receive had he answered the call from the kidnapper on January 14th. Retracing the route described in the envelopes, Bob Booth discovered more labeling tape. Following these new instructions, Bob Booth found himself at the entrance to Dudley Zoo, only a few hundred feet away from the location where the car was found. This was also the place where security guard Gerald Smith had been attacked. The Black Panther must have been confronted by him in yet another botched attempt to exchange the ransom. And that must have been the reason why the kidnapper never called on the second night. Things were finally starting to move forward. The Black Panther was already a known criminal, with multiple police departments looking for him. His true identity was still unknown, but after a week with no leads, this new discovery felt like a massive improvement. And there was still one clue Bob Booth had yet to discover. Uh, Sir, before you go, there was something else our boys found. I thought I told you to keep your boys out of the car. This is my evidence, officer. I'm sorry, sir. We hadn't realized that the car could be involved in the Whittle investigation. We thought it was just a music cassette, but- You found a cassette tape? In this car? Jesus Christ, what else have you kept from me? We've already lost a week because of your department's negligence. I'm sorry, sir. We didn't realize- Of course not. You better pray that this is music. Bob Booth quickly sought out a cassette player. If this tape contained another series of directions that had gone unnoticed by the police for over a week, that could only spell trouble for Leslie Whittle. Mom, go to the M6 North to Junction 10 and on to the A454 towards Walsall. Instructions are taped under the shelf of a telephone box. There's no need to worry, Mom. I'm okay. Um, I got a bit wet, but I'm quite dry now. I'm being treated very well, okay? Again, a sound similar to rushing water nearly drowned out Leslie's voice. And again, there was no indication of where she was when the recording was made or what would happen to her if the instructions weren't met. The discovery of the kidnapper's car may have provided some much-needed evidence to the investigation, but none of it answered the most important question on Bob Booth's mind. Where was Leslie Whittle? And was she still alive? Bob Booth spent the rest of February 1975 widening the search for Leslie, using this new evidence as a guide. The police were still lambasted with crank calls, one of which even claiming that Leslie Whittle had been taken to France. Bob Booth even went on television to field endless questions about the case and why it was still taking so long to find the young heiress. But on March 6th, Bob Booth discovered a new piece of evidence that finally indicated a possible lead for Leslie Whittle's location. This is Detective Chief Superintendent Bob Booth. Yes, hello. I'm an instructor for a school for boys out in Kidsgrove. Some of my kids found something that might be important for your investigation on the missing girl. All right, what was it? They found a note. It looks like it was typed out on some kind of labeling tape. Oh? This could be very important to us. What did the message say? 
Um, it said, drop suitcase into hole. Right. And where did your two boys find this note? Near Bathpool Park, sir. With winding bike paths and a large central lake dotted with lily pads, Bathpool Park was a verdant oasis, ideal for relaxation and recreation. Kids Grove families took their children to the park to play, to walk through the surrounding woods, or to picnic in the afternoons. The beauty of Bathpool Park was perhaps lost to Bob Booth. For him, the park was yet another wasted opportunity to find valuable information about Leslie Whittle's whereabouts. Over seven weeks earlier, Bob Booth had trusted the detectives at Scotland Yard to do a thorough search of Bathpool Park. But now, with the discovery of this new note, Bob Booth knew that there could be any number of other notes, other clues that had gone unnoticed for weeks. By March 7, 1975, Leslie Whittle had been missing for 52 days. The message had instructed the family to drop the ransom into a hole. This was perhaps the biggest clue of all. Maybe the kidnapper, or even Leslie herself, was hidden underground somewhere in Bathpool Park. The search was rapidly coming to its close, but the case would only get darker from there. Thanks again for tuning in to Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with part two of the kidnapping and murder of Leslie Whittle. For more information on Leslie Whittle, among the many sources we used, we found the real crime documentary, The Heiress and the Kidnapper, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Solved Murders, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Solved Murders exclusively on Spotify, just open the app and type Solved Murders in the search bar. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Solved Murders True Crime Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Solved Murders was written by Georgia Hampton, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Jen Wong, K.G. Tang, Tom Bauer, Bill Butts, and Joe Hernandez. It stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. Hey, listeners, don't forget to follow Blind Dating for a fun twist on a classic setup. YouTuber and host Tara Michelle can't wait to help hopeful singles meet their match. Search Blind Dating and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.